1876, thieves had made a serious attempt at grave robbing. And not just any grave, but they wanted to take the corpse of President Abraham Lincoln, and they had this bright idea that we're just going to offer it up as a ransom. Now, this failed attempt brought immense concerns to like the owners of the cemetery, but more to the American people. So a 15-month project was put into place to exhume the body of Lincoln and bring him to a safer gravesite. But this time the coffin would be buried in a 10-foot cage and then encased in concrete. So on September 26, 1901, what is that, almost like 116 years later to the day, we're almost there, right? Lincoln's body was moved. They're moving. But here's the thing. As they're moving it, some people started to get a little freaked out. And fear began to rise as they were rising his body from the ground. So as people were standing around, getting ready to pour the concrete in, a discussion arose amongst the people. And somebody says, should we peek? Should we, should we see if he's still there? Is the body still there? Is, he, is Lincoln still in the box? And so 23 people start freaking out and talking back and forth. And finally, it was voted on majority. Okay, a quick peek. And two guys jumped down in and they cut the part of wood, moldy wood around Lincoln's head. And you guys would not believe what they found. Lincoln. <laughs> Dead. In fact, history would tell us that there was such a harsh, there was a harsh choking smell. Lincoln's famous black suit was completely yellow with mold. The flag he was buried with was only just red thread remnants. But get this, his beard was perfectly intact. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Sorry. They're like, oh, it's Lincoln. Look at his beard. Anyway, in the end, all 23 people were in full agreement. Lincoln's still dead. <laughs> now get this. This was the fifth time officials had made the decision to open the casket and see if he was there. The fifth time. That's insane to me. Something similar happened to Jesus Christ when women and men came to see the sort of, this stone casket of Jesus Christ, it too with its cages and with its guards, yet they saw no moldy yellow suit, they saw no beard, they saw no body. See, Christians and unchristians here tonight, friends here tonight, undoubtedly uh, the most important distinguisher between Jesus Christ and every other man and woman, between every other president, between every other world leader, is resurrection. That is the biggest distinguishing mark is resurrection. Think about it. Uh, both Buddha and, and Muhammad fell, fell ill and died. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was murdered, and every other individual in the world died and remained dead, including Lincoln. No matter how many times you check one's casket, their bodies still live there unmoved. Again, though, with Jesus Christ, the message is, is quite different. The followers throughout the centuries Followers of Jesus throughout the centuries have claimed that after his horrific crucifixion, Jesus was made alive again. And the result of that was Christianity. This, in a lot of ways. 
Every event in the book of Acts was launched by a catapult, by this one single truth that Jesus was not there. In fact, think about this. If you guys have been with us in the book of Acts for a while, all of the motivations from Acts, all of the sermons from Acts, all of the opposition in Acts, and all of the frustration in Acts, you will discover a single denominator. That being the first resurrection of the dead in human history. Friends, out of the 28 chapters in Acts, the resurrection is mentioned more than 30 times and more than 300 times in the New Testament alone. So again, we've been in this book now for two years. We're coming up on our two-year mark. We're coming to a close in Acts. I was telling that, I think, to Ross, and he says, once we're done with Acts, I think the church is done. Was that your prediction, Ross? It was a joke. Oh, okay. (laughs) But it's there to show us what the effects. The book of Acts is there to show us what the effects of a resurrection are and can be in our life and in the life of our church community. And I was thinking this week, but I wonder, I wonder how many of us uh, would find it challenging to answer the question, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for me right now? You see, is it safe to assume that many of us find it challenging to live this life in light of resurrection? I think many of us are actually probably quite good that, oh, yeah, yeah, that was great for them and Acts and Peter and Paul. Oh, no, 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 that's going to be great. End times, all that stuff, when Jesus returns, I get that then and there. But are we aware what it means, what the resurrection means in broken relationships? Are we, of what the, are we aware of what the resurrection means in new marriages? Of what the resurrection means at the grocery store? or with friendships, or in raising our children. So, we need an object lesson. In tonight's chapters, we'll be excavating the reason why Paul is charged, the Apostle Paul, the reason Paul gives a defense, the reason why Paul's immovable, and the reason why Paul is living and going for it. And I'll spoil the ending for you. It's because of the resurrection. He is our object lesson of transformation tonight. So watch carefully. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 24. Again, borrowed Bibles, it's page 544. Now, how I want to handle our many verses tonight is less chronological and more content-oriented, and you'll see what I mean. It'll make sense. So if you remember, the last couple weeks, Paul was arrested on false charges in Jerusalem if you've been with us. And in chapter 23, he was before the judge Felix, and there was no decision made in that court. They couldn't figure out what they're going to do, so they decide to, in Acts 24, up their game. Here's how, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias, which is the highest authority in the Jewish nation, came down with some elders and a spokesman. Ah, Juan Tertullus. I'm not going to pronounce it correctly ever, but just bear with me. They said before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been seven, Tertullus began to accuse him, accusing Paul, saying, since, we, since you and we, excuse me, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. If, you, if anybody may here know some of the history, Felix was a, a crappy leader. So, and everybody knew it. So this is some serious brown nosing here. Look at verse four. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. 
the lawyer continues. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This, this attorney can't even come to say that they are Christians. Do you see that? Because that would be admitting that they worship the Messiah. So he has to think of the most despicable name to call them. And he goes, the sect of the Nazarenes. Verse six, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And now look at verse seven. Go ahead and raise your hand when you're at verse seven. Ah, really? I just David blamed you all. You see a verse seven up there? I don't, unless it's on the screen behind me. Kyle, unless it's on the screen behind me. Verse seven is not there. I just want to give everybody a heads up uh, that hundreds of years ago, basically what we had is, is we had found newer and better Greek manuscripts. So several hundred years ago, what they realized, what we had there in verse seven wasn't the most accurate. So it's probably, if you guys have your Bibles with you, it's probably in your footnotes, but it has nothing with theological implications. So let's keep reading. Verse eight, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. And verse nine, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So Paul is charged by the silver-tongued or silver -tongued attorney with three accusations, three. Verse five, he's a plague. Basically, he's a pest, and he's like carrying a disease amongst the Jewish people. He's a religious heretic who stirs up rights, and he's a temple desecrator. He's a plague, he's a heretic, and a desecrator. These are both religious and political charges here. I want, to say, I want all of us to see that this is an intense case. This is like OJ status. So this is a big deal. But unlike OJ, Paul did not have a smooth talking lawyer. And Paul represented and defended himself as innocent on all of the charges. Nope, not true. Nope, nope, nope. Except one. Paul says, no, 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 no. Actually, there's one thing you can get on me for. Look at verse 21 of chapter 24. This is what he says. Other than this one thing that I cried out, that I screamed out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I'm innocent of all charges except this one thing, advocating the resurrection of the dead. So essentially what we have here is not Paul on trial, but Jesus Christ. Now, here's the genius of Paul. Paul just sliced the room completely in half. Like he just stood up and basically said in a room this size, Bruins are the best athletes. I would divide this room in half. Or if I were to stand up and say, it's a blue dress, I would divide this room in half, right? Here's how. There's those present who believe in the resurrection of the dead, the Pharisees, and between those who don't, the Sadducees. This was a tactfully shrewd way to divide the room. He got into their heads. He made the issue a point of theological debate. And if we think about it, much like our courts today, do courts really care or want to be involved with theological debates? No. So Paul takes a confession of guilt and turns it into a confession of faith. And this bothers Felix. 
And he stops the court right then and there, Judge Judy style. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, of how the Christians of the life of their sect, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, side note, for those who are interested, there was a lot of liberty in prisons at this time. What we have to remember about prison life back then is that prison in and of itself was not a punishment. Prison was more of a waiting room and also there to keep people like Paul secure. People outside want to rip into pieces, stay in here and be secure. So prison was a waiting room for your punishment. And that's literally all it was. No square meals, no cable, no oranges in the new black style. That's all it was. So you relied solely on the generosity of friends to bring you clothes and to bring you food. Prison then was never meant to be an elongated process. But for Paul, that's exactly what it turned into. Look at verse 27. These are some heartbreaking words. When two years had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in a waiting room. It's jacked. And as he's there, we can trust Paul, as we've seen him previously in prior chapters with prisons. He's probably making the best of every opportunity. But as Paul is sitting there for two Christmases and two Easter's and two birthdays and whatever... As he's sitting there, people outside are stewing, furious, plotting, twisting, bothered to their core that that man still breathes. Because the minute, and we know this, the minute Felix is out of office, the first thing they ask for with the new leader, Festus, is this, give us Paul. Give us Paul. Look at 25, chapter 25, verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he may, uh, that he, uh, excuse me, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning and get this, an ambush to kill him on the way. Sneaky little devils. Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So Festus is like, there's no reason to bring him. I'm headed that way. Verse five, so said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So either Festus is smart and he's out planning them or he just, the plan backfired, whatever it is. They're having the trial there and nobody's moving Paul. And then what we have here in verse 25, or excuse me, chapter 25, is an exact rerun of 24. An exact repeat. Paul again, over and over again, says, I am innocent, I am innocent. Except this time, there's something different. There's some different wording. Something is different. Look at verse 19 of chapter 25. We get some insight here to why this is so frustrating for these people. 25 verse 19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. See that sting about their own religion? 
about their own religion, and here it is, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. About a certain Jesus. For those of you who maybe brushed up on your Jewish history, then you know that the Jewish people believed that there will be a resurrection of the dead someday in the distant future when God would physically raise the dead back to life to face judgment and then inaugurate this like new age of peace. Paul, knowing that, shows that it's not an issue of resurrection. He, in verse 25, is showing them it's the issue of Christ's resurrection. Paul's message was that this new era this thing that you guys are so eagerly waiting for has already begun in Jesus. It's basically as if somebody, you know, you're telling your friends, I can't wait for this party to come up. And they look at you and you're like, dude, that party was last night at Jesus's house. Whoa, right? You see, Jesus, I want everybody to get this. Jesus, not resurrection. Jesus Christ is the problem. Jesus Christ is the issue. I was thinking, I wonder if that's actually the same point of dispute or issues with maybe some of our family who don't believe or some of our friends who don't believe or maybe even some people here right now who don't believe. That is less about the plausibility of a resurrection and more about the person of the resurrection. Because as Simon Greenleaf, distinguished professor at Harvard Law, has already said, the evidence is overwhelming. Based on the evidence alone, it takes more faith not to believe that Jesus rose from the dead than it takes faith to believe it. So to those here who might be wavering in their Christian faith and those who would just flat out say, I am not at all a Christian, I wonder if what bothers you or doesn't sit right with the Christian gospel is the same problem that bothered them in that courtroom centuries ago. Jesus. Jesus is my issue. But why? Why? I thought Jesus was some like robe-wearing, dreadlock, moralistic guru who's like passing out free bread and fish to everybody. You guys want to see something cool? Yeah! Everybody's like, I like this Jesus. Like I thought that was, I thought that was Jesus. Why is he such an issue? Because this would mean that Christ's authority over death also means his authority over life. The theme of Acts is really beautiful, but it is one giant, gargantuan response to Jesus' resurrection. It's saying the resurrection of Jesus has basically justified his claim as Messiah that he is not only the prophesied king of Israel, but indeed, if he's really raised from the dead, he's Lord of the entire world. See, for us as believers to claim, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian, is to then claim that we believe in a Jesus who was everything that he said he was. And that's true whether we like it or not. That's true whether we're feeling it or not. So, I mean, to simply ask, if the risen Jesus is truly Lord and God, does he have the right to claim the whole enchilada of life? 
Yeah, he does. It's kind of humorous how many people, um, when reading commentaries or, or talking to people about the book of Acts, it's kind of humorous how many people just get over it, especially in the end, his trials. They're repetitive, they're repetitive, it's repetitive. I'm over it. Paul repeats himself. And I know it's kind of a lot. But Paul does repeat himself over and over. He keeps telling his conversion story. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I get it. We get it. Even when Festus could not find any wrong in him, which if you guys remember, is an issue in and of itself. Because Paul claimed to be a Roman citizen. You guys remember that a couple weeks ago in Acts 25? He says, bring me to Caesar. All right, you know what? There's an issue here. You guys are about to kill me. You're all freaking out. Just bring me to Caesar. The problem is Festus can't find any of these accusations that have been told about him true. And you can only go before Caesar if you can find one of these accusations true. So there's an issue here. Festus is nervous about looking like a total moron in front of you know, Nero at that time. So he invites his buddy, King Agrippa, in hopes that he'll find an accusation that's true. And just a side note again, if you guys care, Agrippa, Agrippa has no legal jurisdiction at this time. He's purely a second pair of eyes. Buddy, buddy, buddy. We're pals. Uh, uh, you know, brothers-in-law. We got, you know, can, can, you, can, you, can you just come and give me a second pair of eyes? That's what a king Agrippa's doing. But again, in Acts 26, verses 1 to 23, get this, Paul tells his story for the third time. Again, Paul tells his story. And people are like, I'm over it. We get it, Paul. We get it. You're name-dropping Jesus again, right? Cool, you party with JC. Move on. But what he's actually doing is he's telling anybody who would listen of his very encounter with a living, resurrected Jesus. Do we get that? This is not just his conversion story. It's a resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. He's telling everybody, I hung out with him. <laughs> he's living. I think many Christians, totally including myself, but many, many Christians can learn from Paul. Here's what I mean. I believe there's a tendency, and you can come talk to me after if you disagree, but I believe there's a tendency with contemporary Christian faith which tends to emphasize the cross of Jesus and minimize the empty tomb. Please don't mishear me. The cross is huge. It's obviously important. Paul even says that to Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 23. should be on the screen. But this is what Paul says, that the Christ must suffer. The Messiah must suffer. So, so Paul gets it. But then he goes on, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. But unlike Paul in that verse, many of us have the tendency to stop there. The Christ must suffer to stop there with a, with a dead Jesus. See, if our faith stops with a dead Jesus or just a crucifixion, then we only see Christ's role in our life as Mr. Clean. Right? Mr. Clean, stain cleaner, sin abolisher, guilt remover. That, that's, that's who Jesus was to me. And what this does is this messes with our Christian thought meaning we have such confidence in what Christ has done, but little understanding of what Christ is doing. See, if we limit the resurrection either to just the past or to just the future, that makes the present 
aliveness, which Paul is trying to undo by every time he tells his conversion story, the present aliveness of Jesus, irrelevant. Irrelevant in, in, in what we do and even in who we are. If you remember, I, um, I started off tonight's talk about the awareness of the resurrection within one's life. And I was reminded of this small poetic thought that I read in, in a book many years ago, and it came to my, thought, my thoughts this week, and I, where an author asks, um, to me, probably one of the most rad and beautiful of all questions. He asks, oh, I love it so much. He asks, are caterpillars aware of their impending resurrection? Oh my gosh. <laughs> right here, Brian. That's where it hits me. I love it. I don't know why bugs. I just love, I don't, whatever it is, I love it. But he goes on to say, and I'm going to read you what this author says, and it won't be on the screen. I, the screen. I just wanted to sit with you. He goes, are caterpillars aware of their impending resurrection? If told, do they believe? Is it conceivable to them that they are so constricted an existence as theirs should burgeon into so gay and lightsome a one as a butterfly? I imagine the wise old caterpillars shaking their head, no. They'd say it can't be. It's fantasy. It's self-deception. It's all a dream. I think this is a, a very helpful distinction between knowing, let's say, two types of Christ. Cross Jesus and conquering Jesus. Are we aware of which one we are trusting? The gospel does not stop at the cross. To believe a gospel which stops at the cross, Paul later in the New Testament says, if that's, all, that's, that's where it stops, that's futile and vain and pointless religion. Let me say it bluntly. We have a dead faith if our belief stops at a dead Christ. That's to live like all the painful things are all final things. That's, to, that's a world without butterflies, if you get me. That, my friends, is not good news. That is not gospel, and that is not Christian. To behold a gospel with a risen, enthroned, real person of Jesus is to know that good comes from graves and triumph comes from tragedy. It's to have confidence in him within every dimension of our breathing and our living. I would hope that we would see how fundamental this is why every sermon in Acts pounds the same drum, every single one. It's not on my notes, but for what it's worth, if we know this or not, there's not a single sermon in the book of Acts about the love of God. Zero. Not that that's bad. We obviously understand that the resurrection is the proof of God's love, but every single sermon is about the resurrection. If he has been raised then Christianity is not another religion or form of positive thinking. If he has been raised, then he is the son of God. If he has been raised, then he is Alpha Omega, right? If he has been raised, he is the risen one. He is Lord, he is King. If he has been raised, then everything in our life has changed. If he has been raised, then we need to listen and obey. If he has been raised, then we are to worship him. If he has been raised, then we need to submit to the same scriptures that he submitted to. If he has been raised, what else? Then pain can have purpose. 
If he has been raised, then eternity matters and now matters. Again, Paul is a brilliant object lesson for this. These last few chapters of Acts make the resurrection a living reality for Paul and Paul's suffering and sanctification are designed to be walking advertisements. Did you guys know that? They're designed to be walking advertisements for you and for me. See, Good Friday, suffering, Easter Sunday morning, resurrection. Now, if I can, I want to give you a really short example of how this works in Paul's life, thus how it's supposed to work in your life. And this is the type of messages that we give one another in our discipleship groups, but this is powerful. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Ross, if you can bring it up. This is huge. This right here is the power of the resurrection. I want everybody to see this because this is epic, okay? We are afflicted in every way, suffering, pain, misery, the horribles of life. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, resurrection. We are perplexed, suffering, but not driven to despair, resurrection. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This is a life of what it means to live in resurrection power. Verse 10, always carrying, just so you know, this is Paul, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This is powerful. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul sees his own physical suffering and spiritual renew as a reality of what it means to live and trust in the risen Jesus. And Paul puts a bow on it later in the chapter by just saying this, and I love this. Though our outer self was wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And Paul brings all this before Felix and Festus and the wife and, and, and the sisters and Agrippa and each one of them are presented with a choice, an expectation of response, much like every single one of us are here tonight. And here's the hoped for response, repentance. To hear this, the hoped for response is repentance. And yes, I did just say the most hated word in Los Angeles, repentance. See, repentance is a declaration of him as God and a denunciation of us as not. Repentance doesn't save us. It acknowledges only that the living Jesus can. Friends, I would not be teaching the Bible accurately. I should not be a pastor to mention something like the resurrection without calling people to repentance. Without mentioning this, I mean, you have to understand, there's an expectation that mankind would respond to something so outrageous. Even Paul called that obedience. Look at verse 26, or excuse me, chapter 26, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and through all, all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Again, every sermon punching with resurrection. And every single time, they either, the apostles either said repent or the people just bursted in repentance. Or they bursted with rejection. It was one of the two. 
There are only two options the book of Acts tells us when we hear a message of resurrection. I believe today, here and now, there are only two options that we have. Repentance or rejection. It may be wrong for me not to ask, how might you respond tonight? Maybe, maybe somebody here will respond like Felix. Look at Acts 24, 24. We're going back a little bit, but it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and, unheard, and heard him speak about faith in Jesus. See, when Paul was left in prison, Felix kept bringing him back to have conversations over and over. He kept bringing him back to talk about Christianity. But you know what Felix really wanted? Just give me a bribe. Give me a bribe so you can get out of here and we can end this. And you know what Paul did every single time? This is unbelievable. He's there before Felix and Drusilla, his 19-year-old wife, okay? And get this. She is the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of all the evil Herods in the Bible. All the Herods that killed, you know, John the Baptist or the one Herod that sent out to kill all the baby, you know, the babies during Christ, seven pound, eight ounces, baby Jesus. That's all Herod's bloodline. She's in that. And look what Paul tells this powerful woman who left her husband to be Felix's third wife. This is what Paul tells these, these powerful people. Verse 25, And as he, Paul, responded about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, basically, get out of here. Go away from me. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I wanted to see the response. See, Paul is fearless in calling people to repentance in response to the resurrection, yet rejection and rejection and rejection. Even with Agrippa in Acts 26, I want to read this fully because I think it's powerful. Acts 26, verse 24. Paul gets done telling him the third time about his interaction with a living Jesus. And as he was saying these things in this offense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, he interrupts him. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Kind of confused on the logic there. Paul, you're, you're too smart, is what he just said. Verse 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind. No, 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 no. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows. Now he turns his attention towards Agrippa. You have to feel the gasping in this room for a man like Paul, a prisoner, to talk to these judges and kings this way. This is intense. There's a heavy, heavy uh, unbelievability here what Paul's doing. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things that has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The resurrection didn't happen in a corner. He knows what's going on. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe, Paul. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be Christian? Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, and this is beautiful, I would to God that not only you, but all, I mean, he probably raises his chains, but all also here, who hear me this day, that I may, they might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, Agrippa's sister, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if, if 
oh, only if he didn't appeal to Caesar. Again, those are incredible court moments for Paul. And they have these sort of battles of the questions, right? Paul basically saying, do you believe? And Agrippa saying, you, you, <laughs> you almost had me. You, you really trying to persuade me to be a Christian? <laughs> you almost got me. And from what we know, sadly, in our history books, Agrippa sided with rejection. Never to accept or repent and receive new life. Now, I need to wrap this up, but I would like to wrap it up with our own question, our own battles, battling question. And that is the single gripping question for both Christian and the unchristian here tonight. It's this. Simply, did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? I want us to see that however we answer that question, will inform how you will answer every other pressing question in your entire life. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Should I repent? Should I reject? Is there a God? When is God going to show up? Why God? When God? Do you love me, God? Do you even like me, God? Will I be okay, God? Every single one of those answers find themselves in the question of, did Jesus rise from the grave? We will have many, many questions and concerns in this life, but may we start with this one. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Amen? Let's pray.